You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking about private credit. Uh, everyone, excuse my voice. I'm fighting some allergies right now, but I didn't want to delay today's recording, today's episode. Private credit has absolutely exploded in popularity among family offices, among high net worth investors. And joining me today is Brad Conger, who is Deputy CIO at Hurdle Callahan. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. And, and in particular, you know, I, I really wanted to, to speak with you about how your firm helped pioneer the outsourced chief investment officer model, because we, we've had you know, plenty of family offices on the show and increasingly, you know, there's so many multifamily offices, shared family offices. There's sort of this, I don't want to say gray area, but, you know, spectrum, whatever you want to call it, yeah, between, yeah. Between, between a high net worth who's working with an advisor and a true, you know, single family office with whatever, 500 million in assets. So can, can you tell us more about this model and maybe, maybe the history of this model? Uh, sure. So our founders, uh, John Hurdle and Don Callahan, were uh, in the securities division at Goldman Sachs, and they were covering families um, around the Philadelphia area, Western Pennsylvania, and Ohio. And one of the things they identified is that many of the best performing family offices were open architecture. They hired best-in-class managers, and they negotiated hard on fees, and they weren't beholden to any single provider. And so um, they started this business in 1988 to basically take the learnings, those learnings, to a broader audience, not just the billion-dollar family offices, but families that have 10 million, 50 million, and 100 who probably couldn't afford to have an internal CIO and a staff to analyze investments. Uh, but we insource that, uh, that talent or recreate that talent and then provide it to much smaller uh, family offices. And, and those families introduced us progressively to their favorite institutions, libraries, hospitals, Etc. So right now our business is about half families and half institutions, uh, but that's the the origin of the business. So you know, how, I guess help me compare or contrast it to like an RIA or fiduciary or you know financial advisor. You know, is it is it like the family office still has an executive or manager, but maybe they're not specializing? In- yeah, a lot of times they. The family makes a decision about what skills they want internally. And, Mm. you know, obviously that's, you know, primarily uh, deal making skills like, you know, quasi investment banking, because a lot of families like to do direct deals and buy businesses uh, because that's many cases how they made their wealth and they're they're comfortable with that. Uh, There's obviously a treasury function, CFO function. And then there's the choice whether you hire an internal CIO and staff. And that's where, that's the the line of demarcation. Like if you do that internally, 
uh, and we work with some where they have internal staff, but we, we provide advice to parts of their program. Uh, but usually, in most cases, uh, the, the families that engage us have an internal finance, investment banking function, um, and, uh, and accounting, et cetera, auditing, et cetera. And then we are the, the investment advisor. And, and in, in many cases, they, those, those families will give us what we call prescribed discretion. So mm-hmm. we have a view of all of their assets. They have legacy assets, uh, like operating businesses. We incorporate that. Obviously, we don't bill on those assets, but then we design a complete investment program around their particular fact pattern. Interesting. So uh, <clears throat> if a family owned, you know, directly owned some sort of legacy business in a certain industry, you might be designing the rest of the portfolio, not as a hedge, but, uh, you know, that would be complementary to the fact that they're very concentrated in this other industry. Absolutely. And we have families uh, who have very often real estate assets. That would be the, the classic case. And uh, for those families, you know, if it's income producing real estate or it's development, that means we're going to de-emphasize real assets for that, for the pool of assets that we manage, understanding that they have that covered in their assets. We have families that have um, businesses that are very cyclical. Mm-hmm. So providing you know, automotive components, uh, industrial capex. Uh, and so the portfolio that we construct is going to incorporate that cyclicality. In other words, we're going to have a portfolio that is more skewed to growth and defensive characteristics, bearing in mind what they have uh, as part of their you know, total asset package. Interesting. And, you know, I know every family is different, but I I guess I'm curious if you could, if it's even possible to imagine a typical client, maybe that's not even possible in the family office world, but, you know, how much of their assets tend to be directly owned, you know, businesses or real estate assets versus what they're outsourcing that's a more, more normal, you know, liquid portfolio or LP type investments? So there is no typical. Um, and, but what we see is in many cases, we are the first outside capital after a liquidity event. And so, you know, family has a business that's been in the family for 40 years. They have a liquidity event. They sell half the business to a private equity firm, or they have a real estate portfolio that they brought in outside. They've liquefied, you know, a portion of that. And so in those cases, we might be 10% of their overall assets or 20%. Um, but the progression is usually towards a more liquid portfolio in the sense that it becomes less dominated by a single asset. And then for, obviously for multi-generational families, by the time you get to generation three, four, by that point, usually the family holding is simply uh, sort of a, a memento, sort of a nostalgic uh, holding in the portfolio. Understood. You know, I, talking with families in this world, you know, I, I don't have a family office. I don't manage a family office. 
Um, but one of the things that surprises me from what I'm told is a lot of family offices struggle sometimes even getting the basics right. I mean, and, and they'll even be honest about it. <laughs> Somehow, you know, it, yeah, you know, if they trust you, meaning like, you know, doing things like 1031 exchanges or just sort of basic tax planning or basic yeah, risk we, mitigation. Oh yeah. We encounter that all the time. Like, uh, particularly families that have had um, long-standing operating businesses uh, will tend not to have encountered things like uh, estate planning, like grants or grant or retained annuity trusts or uh, CLATs that, uh, you know, devices that are familiar to, you know, financial advisors, hmm. but, you know, an operating family, you know, they, they've really you know, never had to deal with that before. Have you noticed a trend of increased professionalization? I mean, is, is that in the family office world? Do you think that that problem or that challenge is, is improving over time? Oh yeah. I think it, what we increasingly see is um, very professional internal staffs and a, a giant expertise network that's been built up um, and, you know, they have family office networks that mm -hmm. allow them to uh, sort of trade ideas and best practices. And so, yeah, I, I think in the past 10 or 15 years, the professionalism of uh, family offices is just kind of rocket. Well, on that note, you know, we wanted to talk about a specific asset class today, which is private credit. And I just in the show, in covering all these different sectors within alternative investment, or I should say asset classes. I mean, it, almost a challenge, but I think a fun part of the show is we cover so much, right? Because what falls under the label alternative investment? Uh, well, a, a heck of a lot, right? Yeah. But, but pr private credit in the past six to nine months, it's not yeah. that it's come out of nowhere. It's always been there. But the amount of attention uh, it was receiving it. I would just say anecdotally how popular it is. And, you know, it, from where I sit, you know, the, the, the risk reward that it represents is very, you know, attractive right now. Mm -hmm. Why, why is this moment, I guess, why is this the perfect storm for private credit? Well, I think that for, for 10 years, since the great financial crisis, we've had very suppressed rates. So mm -hmm. treasury was one, 2%. The, and at the short end of the treasury curve and the muni curve, there was zero. And so, right. uh, so for sure, the Fed's rate hiking, which started last March, moved rates up four and a half percent in the span of uh, about a year. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think that's the primary driver. All of a sudden, there was yield where there hadn't been for 10 years. In addition to that, um, the public markets uh, became very stressed and the spreads have widened in credit, especially in private credit. And so you had two effects. You had the base rates going up from zero to five and you had spreads widening from you know five to six or seven mm -hmm. so all of a sudden you know 
there was there was a year where there hadn't been before. So I think that's the reason it's uh it's appeared quickly. Yeah, it's almost counterintuitive because you know bond yields for the first time in my life, and I turned forty in a couple of days. But for the first time in my life this past year, bonds have been like an attractive asset class. I mean, I'm I'm kind of famous for harping on financial repression, where I I yeah. literally have said to to me how bonds were yielding in the decade prior to last year was like borderline unethical, immoral. I mean, I I I honestly was outraged by it because if it's in a taxable account and you're paying tax on a nominal yield, I mean, it, and then there's any sort of management fee, it's it's a negative real yield, which I just think is absurd. But now for really the first time, you know, depending on how far out you are on the risk curve and, you know, duration, all that maturity and all that, um, you know, you can actually get a positive yield in the bond market. So bonds are more attractive, but it's, so it's counterintuitive, but, but you're saying even though bonds are more attractive, private credit is like exponentially more attractive. I wouldn't call it exponentially. I, I'd say it's in its relative pricing has mm-hmm. relative. Well, I, I like to. I exaggerate a little bit, Brad. You know, come on. <laughs> I say, you're right. Not exponentially. Relatively, we'll we'll stick with relatively. Yeah, but um, but but yields and you know, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fifteen percent. I mean, you know, I, I guess what what are even the you know universe of reasonable yields that you're seeing in private credit right now? Uh, great question. Because private credit, mean, it's like a you know a Rorschach test. It means mm-hmm. different things to basically everybody. Um, it spans everything from non-performing, distressed loans to bankrupt companies, reorganization companies, um, all the way to performing loans or structures that you know have characteristics that are really investment grade, that are basically you know single A rated. So there's this broad spectrum, okay? What we think, uh, our approach is, look, our clients and probably all of your listeners have uh, tons of equity exposure. They have businesses, they have stock portfolios. When When we look at private credit, what we think is interesting is how can we capture yield with the lowest possible risk, not no risk. So our view is there's no there's no reason to take equity like risk in your fixed income portfolio. Meaning we don't buy. Uh, although we're not saying it's not a, a reasonable strategy, but we just don't buy uh, non-performing loan strategies or distressed or workout. We believe, and that's where you're getting into the mid double digits, right? Mm-hmm. We believe that right now you can make uh, loans senior in the capital structure, first lien, secured by good businesses or assets, hard assets or financial assets, in the area of 10 to 11%. And uh, th- in other words, there's so much rich yield at relatively low risk, there's no reason to stretch, go down in quality to take a preferred equity position or a convertible preferred or a mezzanine loan 
that will get you 15. Our view is just take the 10. And uh, it, it's really a way to get yield at low risk rather than take incremental risk to an equity portfolio. I understand. And it, it, it is way more attractive right now. I mean, it, you, because you're talking about very high quality private credit that's asset backed, that does not have equity levels of risk. And if we rewind with interest rates and bond yields a couple of years ago, that kind of private credit may have been yielding 6% or 7%. Or yeah. And, and a, a, an investor like me, I'm, I'm going to say like, why bother? Like, it's just why? not, doesn't Absolutely. really get my attention. Once you hit double digits, I, I, I do think, you know, maybe 9%, but once you hit 10%, I think everybody starts paying a lot more attention. So that's really what you're talking about here is this 10 or 11%. It still represents, you know, I don't know if you call it the AAA of private credit or, or whatever, but but high quality, yeah, private credit, yeah, it's high quality. And so when when families or ultra high net worth investors are allocating, well, first of all, have they always been allocating to private credit in your experience, or is that a new no. allocation? No, exactly. You know, their view, our views completely concurrent with what you just said, which was at six and a half half on an after-tax basis, that really is doesn't justify the work, the documentation. Uh, but, you know, at 11, it starts to justify it. So this is, it's almost a more tactical allocation. I mean, maybe it will be permanent in portfolios, but it's, it's more just a, of the moment. Um, Honestly, for, for taxable investors, I think so, because, um, you know, it's very conceivable that in the next two years, we run into a slowdown in the economy and the Fed tracks rates down. And all of a sudden, base rates aren't five, they're two. And spreads are more normal. And then you're back in the single digits. So I, I don't think uh, families should consider this a permanent allocation. I think it's more, uh, it's more opportunistic. Interesting. Now, as a, as a, you know, as an investor, I try and think of everything in, in a triple net return framework, right? Net of inflation, yeah. fees, and taxes, like mm -hmm. gross returns, gross before fees, before taxes, before inflation, they really don't matter, right? It's not, right. doesn't really come back to me. So like, really, what do I care? So in private credit, is there any tax advantage way to go about it? I mean, you know, the only thing I can think of really would be, you know, putting that allocation inside a SEP IRA or IRA account. Is, is that really, is that really what it is though? It, it's, there's, there's no equivalent of municipal bonds in the private credit world, right? So there are insurance wrappers that, that people at size, meaning more than 25 uh, let's say above 25 million can avail themselves of, uh, which is very tax efficient. Uh, but, you know, for anything below that, you're right. It's, uh, it's best for the non-taxable assets. Interesting. So do you, I guess, do you have any predictions are always dangerous, but I can't help myself. Um, you know, since you mentioned that this might be a tactical allocation to private credit, what do you think happens next? I mean, do you think interest rates are, are going to fall and that the yields are coming back? Well, I down? think we're 
I think we're here for a while. And I'll tell you, this maybe gets into asset allocation, which is off topic. But, you know, I don't think inflation is going to disappear. And therefore, we're in the sort of higher for longer camp. Like, we don't think the Fed is going to cut rates. And um, so, and it, they won't as long as inflation stays in the four to five percent range. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, that means, and then on in terms of spreads, I think there's a reasonable chance that these spreads actually persist for a year or longer. So you've got high rates, the combination of high rates and high spreads. And that means that it's probably worth thinking about. Uh, but when I said it's, it's tactical, I mean on a three to four year view, not a permanent strategic allocation. Well, Brad, you mentioned you're in the camp of uh, higher for longer. And I want to ask why, you know, just what are the what are the specific facts or or theories underlying that camp? Okay, so um, the first is that inflation is resistant. I mean, it's it was nine last year and now it's five. And that that first um reduction in inflation was very simple. There were supply chain complications and and businesses could not get goods. And then there was also the COVID complications. People left the workforce. So labor that's was that's the that's the low hanging fruit, uh, exactly. so, so to speak. Okay. And you know what we what we're gonna face right now, and I mean for the next medium term is um, businesses this is unfortunate for consumers, but I think they got the opportunity to test pricing power that they haven't had in 10 years. Mm. And you saw that with Hershey earnings, all the consumer products, Mondelay, Kraft, uh, Pepsi. They're putting up prices 10% and they're I mean, we, we see it at the grocery store. We see it. I mean, you you know, go buy a fast food meal. It's like $12 now. It's just, and, and you're right. It doesn't matter what inflation falls down to, you know, even if it hits the threes, so many of these prices are never going back down. Right. So we've all kind right. of, it's, we've lost purchasing power. It's three on top of, or three or four on top yeah. of nine. And, you know, right. so yeah, you're right. It never goes back. So that's one, that's one issue is that, um, and I don't want to blame the companies, but they they learn to explore their levers, right? And it's working. Um, the the other thing, and these are sort of very long term, but the green transition is real, and it's going to cost money, and that means the cost of doing business are higher. So, hmm. you know, we all want you know biodiesel, we all want windmills, we all want renewable power, but fundamentally. You know, it's all more expensive than natural gas. And, you know, the other issue is we learned during COVID that uh, you can't buy everything from China, right? And that that reliance on a single point of failure uh, for a supply chain was very dangerous. And so what we're going to see is businesses are going to start um, 
they're going to start uh, diversifying their supply chains. They're going to use Mexico. They're going to use Vietnam. Uh, they're going to bring some back onshore. These things are going to be more expensive, right? Because you know nothing can nothing can be cheaper than producing something at scale in China. Uh, so, so I think those are things that are um, that are secular trends. And we know the other thing we know is that when inflation gets high, it gets volatile. So if you look at the 70s, right, we've reached the four or 5% level, it goes to 12, it comes back to seven, it goes back to 10, goes to five, uh, it becomes very unpredictable. And so I, I think that the combination of those things means it's going to be very hard to bring inflation out of the system and, and go back to a world of a one and a half percent, two percent, ten year treasury. Um, that 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 that's where I think the, that's where I think the Fed will uh, will draw the line. That's really interesting. You know, in in energy, petroleum. I mean, it's it's in everything, right? And even even as we shift to renewables, even that requires traditional sources of energy. Um, is but 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 as you said it's not going away and it's going to be more expensive right it's it's essentially um if you want to be green you have to make do with less i mean i, I think it's <laughs> i know what i'm hearing I, I think that's scientifically true you know if you look at energy efficiency is that is that you say it's not going away though is that because of uh top down i mean is that because of mandates and things is that really the reason that it's not going away or is it yeah it's it's a it's a societal choice and and i i i feel like the momentum is uh is unstoppable now i think as a as uh, as a society we've made a choice that this is the route we're going on hmm. yeah let's hope it's the right one right <laughs> it's gonna be an expensive choice either way um, well, you know, on the, on the topic of insourcing or diversifying supply chain, you know, do you have, you know, you, your, your firm, you have this thesis on private credit, obviously it's more tactical, but with those underlying factors that you've identified, are there any other investment theses that, you know, that, that your firm, you know, go, go looking in the next couple of years. So I'm hearing, you know, sticky inflation. I'm I'm hearing green energy is here to stay. You know, so what what other, you know, from I guess from the family office perspective, ultra high net worth perspective, allocate I, I for me, portfolio allocation is never off topic. You said it earlier in the conversation you referenced yeah. that. Uh, to me that's never off topic. To me that's always on topic. So, you know, how else is this are, are these factors affecting how you advise families or, or just your investment theses for the coming I mean, years? It's not going to be a surprise, but I, I think, uh, you know, the, the amount of innovation in the economy is let, let's say something, I mean, some people, some of my colleagues say it's accelerating. Let's say it's not decelerating for sure. Um, hmm. And companies are staying private the longer. We know that the number of public companies is falling. And, and so, uh, in all of these um, these trends we're talking about, new energy, uh, sort of renewable energy, green transition, uh, lend themselves to 
private startup driven innovation. And so we do believe that people should allocate to private equity as well as private credit uh, because much of the value at value creation will be in the private sector, the non-quoted sector. Uh, the second thing is, um, you know, we, we have emphasized active managers. So we don't do, we don't pick any stocks internally or any securities internally. We hire uh, best in breed managers and equities, small, large, international. Um, and so, and I think that skill, you know, they've had, a, but they've had a rough time when rates stayed low and all you had to do was buy NASDAQ. Um, I think, you know, I, I think active managers, stock pickers, uh, got a bad reputation, right? Because, you know, all you, if, if all you have to do is buy uh, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Netflix, Meta, um, it made stock picking look easy, right? Right. And I don't think it's easy. And so we, we have emphasized managers who can identify changes in trends, changes in underlying competitive dynamics of businesses and allocate capital dynamically in that environment. So both, you know, opportunities in private, opportunities to make uh, active selection decisions are important. Absolutely. And that, that's interesting. You know, you, you mentioned innovation and investing in private equity. I don't know if, in, you know, in your verbiage, if that includes venture capital or-, or It does, or, yeah. No. So, well, I, I, my question on that is, I mean, I totally agree that the, 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 the pace of change is not decelerating. Maybe you can't say it's accelerating because it's already very high. Um, but it seems like right now, in the venture capital world, maybe private equity world, the secondary market is offering discounts, right? I mean, there's just these certain little pockets like with publicly traded REITs. Yeah, yeah. It's like, hey, this this is on sale. Like, you know, even if you wouldn't normally buy this, like I've mentioned to family offices, you, you love direct deals in real estate. I get it. Yeah. I, I do yeah. too. But pu publicly traded REITs just might be better value right now. And, and I'm thinking, you know, I know GPs at venture capital funds and I love them and they're doing amazing things. But I'm thinking for my LP money right now today on, you know, May 11th, as we record this, thinking I might be trying to buy stuff on the secondary market at a 30, 40% discount. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I agree if it's, it's true in both those sectors. I, I think the, the discount of REITs to uh, the, the, the NAV REITs, to their public valuations is higher than it's ever been. Obviously, there's lots of issues. Um, and so we would rely on active managers. To, we have a REIT specialist, uh, and that's something we're considering. Um, I, I totally agree. Secondaries, although we have, uh, we, we raise vintages of private equity that we commit and our recent vintage is has a lot of dry powder and so to the extent companies are being created created today at more favorable valuations it's sort of the same argument you're saying i can buy an existing fund at a discount 
No, that's a good point because even if, if you're deploying new capital today into a, a new round at today's valuation, it's probably going to have roughly the same discount. Same opportunity set, yeah. Well, Brad, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. Um, I always like to hear about the family office world. You know, it's I'm not I'm not directly in the world, but I talk to so many people in it. And it's really interesting how the ultra wealthy invest their money, how families invest. I think there's a lot that high net worth investors can learn from that. So thank you so much for being so transparent, sharing your knowledge with us. And that being said, where can our audience of high net worth investors go to learn more about Hurdle Callahan? Thanks a lot, Andy. Um, enjoy the conversation. Uh, if any of your listeners are interested, they can go to www.hurdlecallahan.com uh, and find out more information. I'll be, okay. I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. Great. Well, thanks a lot. Enjoy talking. All right. Thanks, Brad. All right. Bye-bye. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.